Welcome back to Potties. Oh, I didn't know you were recording. <laughs> I, I thought we were listening to the other one. No, I, I like, thought I was singing it. Oh, well, I said let's listen to it. Oh, I didn't. And then you started recording. I didn't hear you. Well, this is what you get for putting me in charge. Welcome back. It is Friday again when you'll be listening to this. And it is six days until Halloween. Six days. That's crazy. There's How many other people are out there completely waiting until the last minute to get a costume? <laughs> Meg raised her hand. Yeah, if there was a video, you could see me raising my hand. We would never do this if it had video, though. No. 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 Hearing my own voice is awkward enough. It's taken, Wait. like... This is our seventh episode. Mm-hmm. It's taken this whole time just for me to get used to how my voice sounds because it's so different. Yeah. But it's that way with everybody, I guess. I guess it just weirded me out for some reason. That's true. Yes. Yeah. So, six days to Halloween. I have not figured out what I'm going to do. It's going to be something simple. You already ordered a costume. Yeah. Tony and I ended up just being lazy and getting onesies that are animals. But we're not going to say it there yet. Because his is hilarious. A banana. N- not banana. <laughs> no. No bananas. So, we've been doing our weekly questions at the beginning. Yeah. We talked about our favorite candy last week. Yes. This week, we decided to do our favorite trick-or-treating memory. Yeah. Do you want to go first? That was your question you came up with. Sure. So, my favorite memory from trick-or-treating... I don't know exactly how old I was, but I was really young, and Dad dressed up as Jason. He wore dark jeans, and he put on his motorcycle jacket, and he wore the mask, and he followed me around while I trick-or-treated, and he stood at the end of the driveway with his arms crossed in front of him, and he scared the shit out of a little girl. Well, you need to be able to see my face right now because we share the same dad. We grew up together, and I have no idea what this memory is, and I'm kind of pissed that I lost. <laughs> I got left out. <laughs> but, yeah, he scared some little girl, like, because he was just standing at the edge, and, like, it was so dark out, and then it was just moonlight. And then he took off his mask, and he was like, I'm so sorry. It was so cute. Oh, my God. Um. So while we're already embarrassing him, I had a Halloween party one year, and the last thing that we did in costumes, of course, was we went on a scavenger hunt, mm-hmm. and it... I don't remember what we did other than it led us to the final place where the final clue or prize or whatever was supposed to be. And it led to the garbage dumpster. The garbage toter. Okay? And guess who was in the garbage toter? Wait, really? Yes. He had, he washed it out. He climbed in. He sprung out. Scared the piss literally out of one of my friends. Oh, my God. 
where was this? At the house? <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. How oh, we were maybe, oh, 10? Oh, so well beyond before my memory. Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm older than you are, but I don't remember that, that memory with him dressing up as Jason. I mean, maybe you were out for Halloween with friends. Probably. Probably. I did trick-or-treat until I was 18. It's free candy. Like, trick, why not? I would trick or treat it as an adult if other adults weren't so fucking rude about the whole idea. Like, right? you pay no money. There's no expectations for presents. It's not truly a commercialized holiday because you're not required to make shit or give shit to people just because you're related to them. It's the one day out of the whole year you can be anyone or anything you want. And no one should question it. Mm -hmm. And there are people out there who don't want their kids exposed to that holiday. And it breaks my heart because it is like, maybe it's just the bookworm in me, but that's like everything I want oh, in yeah. my inner child. That's mm -hmm. that's everything. I mean, for a kid to be able to dress up like a superhero and to be addressed as a superhero, mm -hmm. it's that can be super validating, especially for kids. I mean... And everyone who's still kind of figuring out who they are and they want support in expressing the things that they enjoy. Amen. I don't even remember what we started talking about, but ask me how I really feel about... Oh, trick-or-treating! Yeah, that. Perfect. Okay, so now that I'm done with that rant... Um, so your favorite... Your fa okay. Oh, yeah, because I told you the story about the toter. Okay, so my favorite trick-or-treating memory was um, our... Neighbors behind us, a really sweet old couple, um, used to do something outrageous, awesome every year for Halloween. It was their favorite holiday. One year he dressed up as a scarecrow and he sat in the chair and would scare people as they went by because they thought he was fake. That's awesome. Because he would sit so still. But my favorite one was when he opened up his grill and he lined it with tinfoil and reddish orange glow sticks so it kind of looked like fire. And then he had the body part chocolate pieces that are wrapped in the tinfoil so with the painting on them. And he had tongs and he was like turning them <laughs> in the grill and then would like give them to you in your trick-or-treat basket so with tongs it was really adorable there were like the little eyeballs and yeah. it oh was the best it was when he died it was it was one of the saddest things I've ever experienced mm. because you know people like that just mm. seems like they're kind of like one in a million they were kind of like an extra set of grandparents but his memories live on we have Christmas decorations from him actually so mm. That's good. Not Halloween. I don't know why, but I got a big reindeer, so I won't complain. It was yeah. made my 10-year-old heart happy. So, so those are our trick-or-treating memories. Yeah, and so for next week, we're going to start telling our question ahead of time. That way, hopefully, other people who are on social media and follow us and listen can answer along with us and kind of be an icebreaker, get us having some fun conversations. So for next week's... We question want to know if you could have like any costume if you could dress up as anything what would it be no limits it can be no cosplay limits. costume it can be handmade it can be ordered it can be gender bender it can be as long as it's not culturally in inappropriate mm -hmm. and uh isn't intending to hurt someone's feelings so play nice mm -hmm. obviously we also have listings on Instagram of all the episodes. 
if you want to at any point, you guys can also go back and answer the other questions. Yeah, we've been doing them for a few episodes now, I mm-hmm. think, and it'll probably become our thing. It kind of gives us something to talk about before we get into the episode, because we always have something relevant to say. Mm-hmm. Usually books that I'm reading, this time it was a rant about trick-or-treating. <laughs> and a little bit about Christmas. And a little bit about Christmas. We're not big Christmas people. We're going to tell you that now. My version of Christmas is Nightmare Before Christmas. Mine is not. If <laughs> I'm sorry. That I'm was... so sick of that movie. Mm, it's my favorite. I know. It was, so, it was never something that, like, being, like, liking, like, Halloween stuff and dark mm-hmm. stuff and wearing black and enjoying black wasn't something that was... Like, you're expressing yourself. It was like, stop being so morbid, you know, stop being so morose, stop being so gothic. I actually wasn't even introduced until Nightmare Before Christmas until I was like 16. And I, it was just like, if I could snap, you would have heard it. It was just watching something for the first time that really connects with you. And I think it's actually part of the, woo, Kale, you were supposed to be watching my microphone. You hit it. I hit it. Well, that's what I get for having flapping my hands everywhere when I'm talking. Just don't ask me for directions. We don't edit this. I don't even remember what I was saying now. I don't either. We could listen to it, but then... No. Oh, it was just that the first time that you're introduced to something that really connects with you. Oh, yes. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm also that, like, bitter-ass crank but that always gets annoyed when something that I really enjoy suddenly becomes popular I know that like the things I enjoy other people should enjoy but I hate when it becomes like a fad that's what always bothers me because it doesn't last there's Mm -hmm. this like overt movement of people that are all hooray for whatever it is Mm -hmm. And I've had that happen with book series that I read all of a sudden people will be like oh my god have you read this I'm like yeah, four years ago when it came out, and and then all of a sudden there's, like, a mass call, and then no one else is, like, yeah. reading again. Mm-hmm. It always happens in between, like, big New York Times bestseller books, it seems like. Mm-hmm. So this week... This week we are actually talking about something that has to do with our hometown, which I thought was kind of neat. It's a spooky kind of episode for Halloween, Um, and we will be talking about spiritualism and where and how it started. And then we're going to end up talking about, mm, end up talking about Houdini and Sir Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle. It's an interesting blend. Yeah. It actually flows together really well. Should we get started? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I gotta, ooh, I can see my microphone now. So that way I'll know if it falls. Huzzah. Okay, so spiritualism is a system of belief or religious practice that's based on supposed communication with the spirits of the dead, especially through the use of mediums. People who believe in spiritualism believe that humans have spirits. They believe that our spirits exist beyond or outside of our body, our life, and that there is an afterlife waiting for us. They believe in life after death. 
and they believe in the equality of the soul, of all souls, regardless of sex, race, ethnicity, or other factors. And through the practice of mediumship, we can unite the living and the dead, send and receive messages to those who have passed, be them friends or family or strangers. But before spiritualism could become a religion, a movement, and a fad, it had to start somewhere. And that somewhere was Western New York. Western. We live in New York, not New York City. Mm-hmm. We live nine hours from New York City. I swear New York City should just be its own state. It really should. I wish it would be. It would. I don't think I've ever had anybody be like, oh, you're from New York, and then like not mm-hmm. say New York City. So yeah, so this is a hometown episode. So in December of 1847, the Fox family moved from Ontario, Canada, to a farmhouse outside of Rochester, New York, one that was supposedly haunted. It was in this farmhouse that everything would change. Margaret Fox, the mother, quickly became convinced of the haunting. Each creak of the house and groan of the floorboard would make her jump. Seriously deprived of sleep and anxious to protect her family, Margaret had the two young girls move into their parents' bedroom to sleep. At the time, Margaret, who goes by Maggie, was 15, and Catherine, who went by Kate, was 12. And maybe it's because it was winter and the two youngest Fox sisters were bored teenagers, but whatever the reason, they decided to trick their mom. On March 31st, a rapping sound could be heard in the Fox's farmhouse. The two sisters began talking to the noises. They gave the spirit a nickname, Mr. Splitfoot, and their mother began asking questions. By knocking once for no and knocking twice for yes, the spirit could communicate with the foxes. Margaret was so taken by this incident that she invented... Nope. Mm, She invented neighbors. Nope. She invited neighbors over to experience it for themselves. Records state that at least one, if not both, of the girls tried to change their mother's mind. Some accounts even mention that the very next day was April Fool's and maybe the whole thing was a prank. But the neighbors came, a handful at first, but then by the droves. And at first they didn't believe. They just, they couldn't. But it was the children that came with the neighbors. And their being scared was what made people believe. And the longer that they communicated with this spirit, the more information they had. And suddenly everyone was taking it seriously. In one specific instance, the being behind the mysterious wrappings was asked to knock out the age of each of the speaker's children. And it did. It probably took like five hours. <laughs> Mediums who can interpret and communicate with knockings or wrappings, as they became to known as, were referred to as wrapping spirit mediums, which makes sense. The spirit they were talking to had been murdered. He was a 31-year-old peddler selling wares door-to-door, and he had been murdered by a previous tenant of the farmhouse and buried in the basement. Some accounts say that his name was revealed to be Charles B. Rosna, a father of five. That Saturday, the foxes and their neighbors attempted to dig up the basement floor. Flooding kept them from being successful in their dig, but it did not put an end to the rumors. A peddler had, in fact, gone through town two years ago, people started to say. They couldn't remember his name, but they were sure that he existed. Following the events of March 31st, the sisters would become celebrities. The story of the haunting spread far beyond their sleepy little town, and the sisters, Maggie and Kate, would become celebrities. The humble farmhouse the family had just moved into was now a hot spot for curiosity 
seekers far and wide, and not just the good kind. Skeptics of all kinds spoke out about the Rochester wrappings. Everyone wanted to see this spirit in action to meet the two young mediums, and before long, the family was overwhelmed and they sought refuge from another family member, one of the other Fox children, in another town to give them a temporary reprieve. The church, believing the mediumship to be unholy, asked the family to leave the congregation. Now fully embroiled in this phenomenon, John and Margaret, the parents, decided it was best for the girls to stay with relatives. For a short time, the girls would stay with different siblings, but before long, both would move in with their older sister, Leah. So before we continue, we want to remind you to keep in time, keep in time, keep in mind the time, which was 1847-1848, and location, Rochester, New York, which is where we live. Which is... Closer to Canada and Niagara Falls than probably anything anyone out of state can recognize, just to give yeah. some geographic. Yeah. So hopefully all our local listeners are aware of the history in our city, but for anybody who doesn't know, here's the scene. The Civil War hasn't happened yet, but Frederick Douglass was already creating and distributing an abolitionist newspaper, and the first Women's Right Convention was held in Western New York. Western New York ended up being a focal point for free thinking. The idea that each person should form their opinions and beliefs based on logic and facts without an authority figure dictating for them. Hell yes. Mm-hmm. And it proved to be the perfect setting for the spiritualism movement. It did. Rochester itself was the first boom town in America because of the construction of the Erie Canal. It was also known as the Burned Over District because of the religious fervor sweeping the state at the time. The influx of people brought with it what was typical of towns and industrialization at the time, and it also brought a wide range of people from rich businessmen to immigrants to the area. And all over the country, the mortality rate was on the rise. Everybody were ter- everybody was terrified of dying from cholera, whooping cough, diphtheria. Few infants survived the first year of life. Women died in childbirth, and the country was on the brink of war. Mediumship gave people hope, a sense of closure, and happiness. So back to the main story. Leah, the oldest Fox sister, was a born entrepreneur. And it's a good thing for her, I guess, considering she couldn't learn to make the wrappings as her sisters, even with their instruction. Jules, I doubt I could either. Yeah. Too much. So instead of participating in the seances, she declared herself the official interpreter of the Knox. Which kind of sounds like a cool title. It does, but she was kind of a bitch about it. Yeah, that's true. She really was. So once the three sisters were living together under the same roof, their plan came together. They didn't waste any time, and Leah began selling tickets for seances for a dollar a person, which is about $26 a day today. That seems kind of like on par with a trip to the movies or something these days. Yeah, that's true. And it wasn't just the ticket sales that helped them be successful. A lot of people also gave them tips and donations because they believed in it and they wanted to encourage it. The seances were crazy successful, and pretty soon Maggie and Kate were performing in theaters all across New England. They were mostly known for their rapping, but the sisters became proficient in other types of mediumship as well, like moving furniture, doors shutting, cold hands grabbing clients. The sisters' first public seance was hosted at Rochester's Corinthian Theater, which was a brand new lecture hall that would eventually go on to see such famous speakers as Frederick Douglass, Susan B. Anthony, 
Ralph Waldo Emerson and Charles Dickens, which is really cool. Isn't that neat? That's so cool. The building, unfortunately, succumbed to a fire, I believe, in the very early 1900s. And I believe they built another building in its place, but there's something to commemorate it. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So Maggie and Kate's show started at 7 o'clock and cost 25 cents a ticket, which is about thirty two sixty one today. Yeah. Which is pretty typical for a ticket to something that, you know. That's actually would be pretty cheap if you were to go. I mean, this is this is a lecture hall, so it's like yeah, where you would go sure. to see motivational speakers, mm -hmm. out-of-town guests, experts on topics. So, you know, 32 bucks for entrance into one of those would actually be on the lower side, I feel like. Yeah. The three performances that they did at the hall were flawlessly done, but they had some of the most disruptive audiences you could imagine. Most people expected them to be frauds. They went into it thinking that it wasn't real. Representatives from churches believed the spiritualism to be a heresy, of course. Of course. The energy of the crowd was less enthusiastic. On the second night of the performance, a group of skeptics failed to find signs of fraud, which only made the audience more mad. The sisters were tested. They were placed on different various surfaces, like glass and pillows. They were even, for a lack of a better way to say it, strip-searched to make sure they had no tools of any kind hidden in their undergarments. And on the third and final night of the performance, a whole riot broke out, fireworks were set off, and the sisters had to be snuck out a side entrance to avoid them. While it sounds like an absolute disaster... That phrase, there's no such thing as bad publicity, comes to mind. Yeah, they really, it actually helped skyrocket their career because... Everybody was talking about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, bad news is news. Mm -hmm. Worked. I guess it worked in their benefit is probably the best way to say it. Yeah. And now with the peak of their popularity, the sisters were touring New York and the New England area, performing in large theaters, small and intimate seances alike. The smaller seances seemed to be more effective. They gave a more intimate and controllable environment for the medium and her customers. The Fox sisters had a very specific setup that they preferred, and it looked like a wooden table sitting in the middle of a dark room. After joining around the table, the sisters would open the seance with a song or a prayer, then join hands and observe a moment of silence. Then the wrapping would begin, and a code for yes and no, numbers, and an alphabet was used for interpret messages. This is also way pre-indoor electricity, so yeah. you gotta think... At nighttime, spooky, you're yeah. lit by candlelight, a lot of the houses are creaky and make natural settling noises. It mm -hmm. sets up the perfect atmosphere, and I can see why the more intimate setting worked for, for this seance versus, like, going to an amphitheater or, you know, a sports yeah, arena absolutely. or something. You lose that, like, eerie kind of mm -hmm. vibe that you get. So, on their tour, one specific stretch included stops in Albany, which is New York's capital, and New York City, where they stayed at the Barnum Hotel. It was reported that they made $90 a day, or roughly $2,700 in today's money. I do want to make $2,700 a day. That's crazy. I can't even imagine. I, and, I mean, I know it's possible. It's just, maybe it just seems less possible now because... We don't have, like, flare-ups of mediums and yeah. these, what do you even call these kind of things? It's like pop culture before there was pop culture, like. Yeah. That, hmm. 
We'll get to it in a little bit when we talk about, like, newspapers and everything, because that's part of what helped. But, I mean, this was popular culture at the time, so was Barnum. Yeah. So, their notoriety, if not their success, was an inspiration to many women around the world. At the time, women were supposed to be passive, and they were assumed to be emotional. Sometimes, overly emotional. Traits which kept women from being included from the men were now the perfect attributes for being a medium. Being a medium required conversation with the dead, be it speaking on their behalf or going into trances. While serving as a go-between between the afterlife and the living, these female mediums were allowed, if not expected, to ditch their forced attributes. They used language not fit for a lady, including cursing. They became vocal. They became dominant. They became strong to the point that it was not uncommon for mediums to relay that the spirits told them they should get a divorce. I just love that. By 1855, the spiritualism movement of belief in religion reached a massive following of 2 million people. As the spiritualism movement gained traction and followers, the types of mediumship grew to include the use of singing, writing on chalkboards, lecturing, tables, chairs, and people could levitate, objects could move and be manipulated, lights could dance. That seems the most convincing one to, mm-hmm. to me. I mean, we're, we're talking about using candles to light it. Sparkling lights would be like yeah. magic to me. And then there's automatic writing or the use of spirit boards like Ouija gained popularity towards the end of the 19th century. In the years to come after the conclusion of the Civil War, mediumship was an answer for those who lost friends and family, and the Ouija boards became immensely popular. Those who suffered losses found solace in the spiritualism's idea of life after death. It was comforting then, just like many find comfort in it now. Some... Could some claim they could produce ectoplasm, a mysterious and otherworldly substance that oozes from their orifices during seances? I just don't even want to know. It, you, you just wait for it because it's like it. You can't help but think Ghostbusters, but it's it's gross. It's worse. Great. (laughs) (laughs) One such medium was Helen Duncan. She was born in Scotland in 1897, and she would go on to be the last person to be imprisoned under the Witchcraft Act in Britain in 1944. 1944. 1944. People were pissed that this law was being used in the modern time, and there are quotes from, like, higher-up government officials, like, all over the world, just, like squawking because they're like oh my god a witchcraft act in 1994 everybody's wearing freaking butterfly clips and watching friends and this lady born in scotland's charged on witchcraft so she was a mother of six Six, with a sick World War I veteran husband, and she began holding seances to earn extra money. Like the mediums before her from the Civil War era, Helen was able to offer her services to the families of lost soldiers from the First World War. She... Hmm? It's so messed up. Yeah, right. Capitalizing so on... Cool. yeah, gr- their pain. Grief. I'm, I have read accounts that some of these women really believed themselves capable. That doesn't surprise which me. Which gives me all, all other kinds of feels. Mm-hmm. 
So Helen herself toured through Breton and faced much of the same scrutiny that the Fox sisters did. But Helen gained extra attention because of the ectoplasm we mentioned. She was identified as a fraud when it was discovered that the ectoplasm was really regurgitated cheesecloth that she had used egg whites to hold together. Oh. So like a mama bird, she hacked up this cheesecloth, and I believe it had a name. Its name was like Jane or something, and uh, it was supposed to be like a little spirit buddy or something. Wow. So after this, she was charged with Section 4 of the Witchcraft Act, which was from 1735, and fraudulent spiritual activity. After serving only six months of her prison sentence, Helen was released under the agreement that she would no longer host seances. Want to bet if she behaved? Of course not. She didn't listen. She was arrested again, and then, unfortunately, she died five weeks later. Mm. The Witchcraft Act was later repealed and replaced in 1951, and the updated charge was the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which claimed that to claim to be a medium or a psychic and deceiving others about it and taking money in exchange for that deceptive service was illegal until the law was repealed and updated again in 2008, and it now looks to charge people with unfair sales and marketing charges. Because people love that bullshit again. And <laughs> Billy, Billy Mays. But wait, there's more. <laughs> a few episodes ago, we talked about the role that the newspaper played in the arsenic assassination extravaganza, like you were saying before. My and favorite topics. So the increase in literacy at the time, like we had talked about, and a decrease in the cost of newspapers meant that there were more readers than ever. Yay. Yay. And yeah, I climbed a lot. Like, wasn't yeah. it, like, 55 to, like, 90% or something? Crazy amount. Yeah, that's yeah. so awesome. Mm -hmm. The same idea that drew an audience then applies now. Intrigue, drama, sex, murder, mystery, rock and roll. In the specific case of mediums and the spiritualism movement, it wasn't through religious or scientific connections that the movement grew. It was because of mass media. Although it was invented and in use for a decade and a half before the spiritualism movement, the penny press was a pivotal tool in mediums. The penny press was a newspaper for the masses. It was successful for three reasons. One, lower prices. Two, wider availability. And three, operating on an ad-based revenue system. What this meant is that the paper's success and income was dependent on their ability to publish a wide range of topics that appealed to the masses. This type of publicity allowed for these women, these mediums, to be part of the ever-expanding world of mass media, and it was mutually beneficial. It's not unlike the practices today where people have yeah. a Patreon account and people support you for... Like we do. <laughs> yeah, like us. Wow. I should have really... Is there like a... <laughs> like a cop totally. <laughs> Perfect example. So, but enough of being off track. So perfect for us. The last we heard about the Fox sisters, they had performed at the Corinthian Hall in Pretoria, New England. While the spiritualism movement was still growing in popularity, the lives of the Fox sisters definitely took a turn for the worse. As early as 1849, they tried to confess to the false seances, but something always kept them from doing it, and many believed that something was Leah, the older sister. 
1851, after being examined by a set of buffalo doctors. <laughs> just doctors quotes, from buffalo. buffalo. Nothing fun. No. The first time I read that, I was just picturing it's, it. It sounds like something really strange, but it's, yeah. it's not. Just normal doctors. So after they were examined by them, the women were declared frauds publicly for the first, but not the last time. And their relationship with their older sister, Leah, was extremely toxic. She was noted as having threatened them if they didn't go along with the public performances. Two years later, Maggie and Kate moved to New York City, and they all went their separate ways. Margaret fell into a fraught relationship with an explorer named Ezra Kane. His church didn't like her profession, and his parents didn't approve of her. All the while, Maggie's profession and the spiritualism movement didn't want to marry a non-believer. After Kane's untimely death, Maggie found refuge in the bottle, just like her father and her older sister, Kate. In England, Kate had married and had two young sons. Unfortunately, her husband also died unexpectedly, and Kate returned to New York. In 1888, both of the girls appeared in public at the New York Academy of Music and publicly announced that the rappings had been a hoax. Only a year later, they recanted their confession, but the damage was already done. The era of the Rochester rappers was at an end. Both Maggie and Kate drank a lot, and the rest of their lives would be dismal. In the end, or their end, Kate died from alcoholism, and Maggie died a few later, a few years later of heart failure. Months later, spiritualists formed what is now known as the National Spiritualist Association of Churches. They went back to that house to dig in the basement, where they claimed that the, what was he called? Oh, the, uh, yeah, they, I don't remember what his name was, because it was a fake name, it was, yeah. it was a name they made up. But they said that he was buried in the basement, so this group searched the basement of the house, the farmhouse where they had lived, and they found bones, which were chicken bones. Yeah. They, they had found, been planted there. Yeah, trying to capitalize on it, I think. Yep. So, how did the Fox sisters do it? I mean, when we prepared the episode, I wanted to write it as if you were going along with the journey, and people didn't really see the behind. They knew that people were claiming they were frauds, but no one had proof of it. I mean, they right. they were interviewed, like, on the stage, their feet were put on the pillow that you mentioned, and there were sometimes explanations, like, oh, maybe the spirits just weren't intercepting, you know, my calls right now, or... Something like that. It did happen. It sounds really weird, but, I mean, kind of... I watched, like, a spooky episode of Doctor Who with Matt Smith or David Tennant, mm -hmm. where they go back in time and they view one of those, like, personal seances. That'd be cool. That'd be creepy. There is a really creepy episode with Matt Smith, though, in the hotel. It's, like, one room in the hotel has each of their darkest fears. Oh, God. It's... That it's like right up there with the episodes with the angels where he's with Amy and whatever you do, don't open your eyes. Mm -hmm. Whew! Goosebumps. Okay, back to other kind of <laughs> spooky things. So, after the Fox sisters were publicly declared frauds multiple times, and like we said, there was no concrete evidence given to prove their guilt, but that would change on that night in 1888 at the Academy. 
Maggie took the stage and performed one last time, showing the audience how her and Kate got away with it. In the beginning, back at the farmhouse, it was an apple on a string that created the knocking sound. Like, they would drop it at different intervals, and it... They're bored teenagers. I mean, I can't imagine my kids would put an apple on a string and pretend to be ghosts now, because we live in, like, the digital age, but... Then it turns out that the girls were capable of cracking their knuckles on their toes and they could do it on command and they got so good at it that they could actually snap their toes just like you do fingers and they could do it in their shoes. I can't even imagine how that's possible. I, I can't even snap my fingers. I may or may not have spent some time trying to see if I could <laughs> snap my toes. I won't admit to how long. Um, it's... Tough as fuck. I couldn't do it. I mean, I can't snap with my fingers. I can't even imagine being able to do that. Okay, if anybody can snap with their toes, because we want you all to try it. If anybody can do it, take video proof and send it to us. Yeah. I don't really want to look at your feet, because I, I don't like feet, but I'm going to be really Just impressed. send audio only. Well, then there's no proof. Yeah, yeah. there's no proof. Oh, well. So we're so <laughs> off track so many times. Always. I'm so, sorry. so you might think that this was the end of spiritualism. We mentioned that by the time they recanted their confession, it was done for. But it, that was really just their popularity, their time in the limelight, because spiritualism as a movement was still strong. It mm -hmm. was just the Fox sisters' fate that was doomed. Fractions in the spiritualism movement were created, and controversy still exists today. Some people believe them to be true mediums, others believe them to be blatant frauds and everything in between. Some think that they drank because they truly were mediums and it was a burden to them. There's explanations out there for, hmm. you know, it's like Doctor Who conspiracies, right. but for history buffs. So, Sir Arthur Coyle... Nope. Not Sir Arthur Coyle. That sounds like a car part. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has been called the most famous supporter of spiritualism there ever was. And Harry Houdini has been identified as one of the most determined non-believers in existence. The author would tour the country, lecturing on the religion and its ability to unite families with their loved ones in the afterlife. He directly challenged a leading magazine at Mm -mm. No, nope. magazine at the time. I used to say mazagine when I was a baby. <laughs> at the time, which was Scientific America, to settle the matter of this psychic phenomenon once and for all. They stepped up to the plate immediately and offered a $5,000 prize to anyone who could give concrete proof of psychic abilities. All the contestants would be judged by a panel of five. Two scientists, two ghost chasers, and Harry Houdini. Arthur Conan Doyle is known primarily for his works with Sherlock Holmes, but there's more to this author than his writings. Raised Catholic, Doyle identified as agnostic and pulled away from the church. But in 1881, the spiritualism movement caught his eye. He attended seances. He wrote articles and papers. He did interviews about his experiences and thoughts. Then, in 1893, his dedication to investigating and supporting spiritualism hit a peak when he joined the British Society for Psychical Research, and by 1917, he was lecturing, passing on his knowledge to other followers. He was so enthusiastic and sincere about his beliefs that even people on the other side of the issue respected him and his intentions. 
in the way that he approached the topic. Wait, was he he was alive in 1917? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually well, triple check, but now you got me really second guessing. No, I mean it looks like you're right. But... Siri, <laughs> Alexa. No, I don't have one. Oh, Siri, when did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle die? For some reason, I thought it was like so. Sometimes it's just weird seeing dates. I don't know why. Yeah. Kind of like with Leonardo da Vinci, like when there's something that's happening at the same time as the Renaissance but isn't in the Renaissance, my brain is like, what? There's something else going on. So, okay, getting back on track. Yet again. By nine, though, by the nineteen seventeen, he was lecturing, passing on his knowledge. Da, 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 da. Oh yeah, so the people that commented on this, there were multiple people throughout history that either were interviewed or just commented somehow and talked about how even though they were on the opposite side of the topic as him, mm-hmm. he was just so passionate, and they could tell he really believed in it that it didn't cause like fights or commotion. It was like a doesn't something that doesn't seem to happen today they respected yeah, his right. beliefs and crazy though because he was polite about it it is great so as much as doyle was a proponent of spiritualism houdini was not despite this fact doyle and houdini became friends and despite attempting to get him to believe in the afterlife houdini would forever be disappointed by his inability to contact his deceased mother In 1922, the two couples, Arthur Conan Doyle and his wife and Harry Houdini and his wife, uh, did a seance. And Arthur Conan Doyle's wife believed that she would be able to do a type of mediumship where she would write down what the spirits were saying. And she believed that she'd be able to deliver him a letter that would solve his spiritualism crisis. And that was hearing from his mother. That was what he really wanted and needed to be a believer of spiritualism. Mm -hmm. But the seance was a disaster. At best, he believed them frauds. And at worst, he believed they intended to dupe him. If he'd been able to find a real medium and make contact, maybe his beliefs would have been different. But trying to pass off an English seance writing letter as one from his mother who did not speak English just, to me, seems like deception. Oh, yeah. It just it seems like a slap in the face. Yeah. And I think that's probably where, like, the first crack in their relationship really came in. Mm-hmm. Because it said that the friendship never recovered after that point, and Harry dedicated years of his life to debunking seances and other forms of mediumship. His acts as a magician and performer may have started out with just a touch of the supernatural, but he quickly devoted his time and talent to deny the supernatural instead. He continued to push the bounds of his human life instead of spending his life advocating for flim flam fake religion. It's a fun word. Flim flam. Flim flam. Flim flam. So some background information for Houdini. He was a Hungarian American performer and his birth name was Eric Wise. In 1899 his talent was recognized and he was booked at the best venues that vaudeville had to offer. He was always outdoing himself, and Houdini was known for his escape attempts and near-death experiences. Oh, do we want to just do a, a little thing quick about vaudeville? 
Oh, yeah. Because we looked it up just to make sure we were pronouncing it correctly. And so, according to the dictionary, vaudeville is a type of entertainment popular chiefly in the U.S. in the early 20th century, featuring a mixture of specialty acts such as burlesque comedy and song and dance. Fun stuff. Just, just in case nobody yeah. knew what it was. Absolutely. So, escape attempts and near-death experiences. On stage, Houdini was assisted by his wife. Handcuffs, straitjackets, chains and locks, water tanks, and packing crates. Every escape was more daring than the last. In 1907, Rochester hosted one of his epic performances, mm -hmm. which is so cool. Thousands of onlookers watched Houdini perform his first manacle bridge jump. In handcuffs and chains, he jumped from the bridge and emerged mere seconds later. Fifteen seconds to be exact. The audience need not be worried, though. Fifteen seconds is nothing compared to the three-plus minutes that he could hold his breath. I've heard that you can train yourself to go even longer than that, but I feel like every time I try to hold my breath for longer than, like... Do you know that, like, old wives tell about holding your breath when you drive past a graveyard? Mm, I don't think so. No, you've never heard that? I don't know if it was supposedly, like, good luck to do it or something, but it was an old wives' tale, and some cemeteries are huge, yeah. and I can never hold my breath past them. <laughs> I can't either. I'm terrible at it. So the peak of Houdini's career included his performance with the Chinese water torture cell. Just sounds terrifying. He was suspended upside down his, by his feet, lowered into a glass case, and then locked in. This was the most dangerous act in his repertoire. Outside of his magic and performances, Harry Handcuff Houdini was the president of the Society of American Magicians. Part of this affiliation was his consistent and lifelong pursuit of debunking fraudulent magic and spiritualism, like he said. Harry Houdini died at the age of 52 on Halloween in 1926. The cause of death was peritonitis, which is an infection caused by a ruptured appendix, which is usually deadly, and mm -hmm. he had it. Only two years later, we would see the invention of pen penicillin, as we know is an antibiotic, and it could have treated his infection. Before his death, Houdini and his wife came up with a secret code, a code that only the two of them knew that could be passed on in the afterlife, if it existed and if it was possible, and she never got a message. No, she claimed before he died that she didn't believe in it at all, but they still had the code, and mm. I wonder what it was. I wonder if it I was know, right? like, you know, like a password unlock code for your phone where it's just like a few digits and numbers, or was it a phrase? I feel like I've read it somewhere, but I've read other places that it was like a secret. Uh, I'm yeah. just nosy. I want to know what it was. I know. Taco Tuesday? At the same point, it's kind of cool, though, because it was just for the two of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just like the idea of it being, yeah, like, something weird. Taco Tuesday. Grab milk on the way home. I don't know. Just something <laughs> weird. I had to ask my boss his permission to use his computer today for something, because my office doesn't have speakers. He was like, oh, yeah, go ahead. You know the password, right? And I was like, no, I don't know the password to your computer. And he starts laughing. And I was like, what? He goes... It's monkey fart. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? He's like, well, I mean, think about it. Nobody would ever guess that. And I was like, yeah, that's true, I suppose. Do you need to tell him to change his password now? Apparently, I don't know. <laughs> monkey fart. Okay. Oh, I love <clears throat> Okay, I'll see your monkey fart and raise you another embarrassing dad story. Well, this will really uh, tell us if he listens or not. Um, when... 
Seth and I moved into our first apartment, we had him come over and set up our internet for us, the mm-hmm. wireless router and the modem and everything. And um, it was our first time having a router and we had to name it and we didn't really care. So dad named it S&M. And it stood for Seth and Meg, which, you know, makes sense and everything. But uh, I had a guest over at one point not long after that who burst out laughing um, at S&M. And uh, we promptly changed it. (laughs) (laughs) Only he would do something like that. Oh, it it was funny. But, okay, back on track yet again, because we're at the end. So we talked about how popular spiritualism was at its peak, but now we're down at the bottom. Behind 1900, the majority of the momentum of the spiritualism movement had died down. In a relatively short time, the movement changed much of history. The combination of seances and mediums and private residences mingled the spiritualism with entertainment in parlors like board games, music, and toys. It helped to establish the sitting room at homes as an area to entertain. As a resident, it's slightly exciting to say that Rochester played a pivotal role in the movement of spiritualism, and it's true. Rochester was America's first boom town, and it would be the hot seat for mediums for years to come. It's this movement, this belief system and practice spread not just across the country, but across the sea as well. It's argued that it's America's first export to the old motherland. spiritualism i get a kick out of that i just think that that's so cool Mm -hmm. and there's still a division of of an active spiritualism movement there's obviously people today that believe in the souls and believe in the afterlife so i think it was it was like one of those powder kegs you uh learn about in high school history class Mm. you know i was all of these things that just added up to make the perfect storm but in this instance whatever is an opposite of a storm. That's a good thing because I'm blanking. Rainbows, sure. Sun. That's probably the opposite of a storm. We never did our intro. No, we didn't because we didn't. you threw me off. <laughs> it was worth it. It was funny. So we'll oh. skip. We'll skip the intro. What were you gonna say? You wanted to mention something fun. Oh yeah, about Rochester. So I got to brag a little bit about Rochester. I feel like if I have to pay the taxes and scoop snow six months a year, mm-hmm. gotta have some things I can brag about. And you mentioned Frederick Douglass and oh my gosh, Susan B. Anthony. Yeah, who else? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I already forgot. Wow. Oh, the women's rights movement. That's why it's not. Yeah. A, it was not a name. It was a movement at Seneca Falls, which is just. It was the 99th anniversary this year. Mm-hmm. Next year is the Roaring Twenties again. It's a hundred fucking years since women got the right to vote. Next year, I hope every person out there, not just the boob havers, goes and votes. It's really important. Get out there and make a fucking difference, but seriously, celebrate because women, we still have a long ways to go, but that's a huge and incredible milestone that's kind of near and dear to my heart because we were so close to it. We're driving distance to the reenactments. I actually went to one as a child. Want to say that I enjoyed it, but I don't remember. I remember being really long and really warm. Um, Yeah. 
But the other thing that's really neat, besides being the women's rights movement and Frederick Douglass's, um, where he lived, is Susan B. Anthony, like you said. And there's a tradition that after a voting, people line up outside of her grave in the Mount Hope Cemetery in Rochester, New York, and they line up to place their I Voted stickers on her headstone. And the last time that I, last, sorry, the last election, which was the last time that I read about that tradition taking place, the line was so long that it went out the gates of the cemetery and wrapped around the block, despite the fact that the cemetery has open hours. It was just... Amazing. Hundreds of people. I mean, I'm sure at some point they had to take the stickers off so you could put more on because right. they ran out of room. But it's it's a really cool local tradition that I don't think very many people in general outside of Rochester know about. Mm. And she was just so pivotal for these rights to vote and other things that, you know, it's easy to remember and put in perspective when we think back that 100 years really wasn't that long ago. Right. And if everything goes how I'm hoping it goes, not only will I be voting again this year, but I will hopefully again be voting for a female president. Did you know that if enough people write in the same person, that it'll be counted? So you can go back and search through records of voting percentages and Walt Disney is always mentioned. Mickey There's Mouse, yeah. um, Mickey Mouse. I think... I want to say somebody did a vegetable one time, so, like, say, asparagus got a bunch of votes. Pretty I've... sure that, uh... Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. Harambe? Oh, oh, After yeah. that happened, he got a bunch of votes. I can't say I'm surprised. Neither. If you could vote in anyone, not seriously, like, let's not get political. Like, not the ideal candidate, but, like, just... You're going to make a movie or something. You're going to redo, uh, you never saw it, but Robin Williams was in Man of the Year. Yeah. Where he's a comedian that gets accidentally elected to the president. Mm -hmm. See, and he, he shows up wearing like the full like founding fathers get up with like the curled wig and it's so good. Let me guess, you would pick The Rock. Yeah. Um, yes, probably Jimmy Fallon's up there too. Oh. I just, I love, I love uh, the stances that he's been taking publicly. He's doing everything that you want your white male friends to do is use their voice to stand up for people who aren't being heard. I think I would say Patrick Stewart for president and Ian McKellen as his VP. If I was going to say they have to come as a pair. Absolutely. They hold hands. Yeah, I know. It would, did o did o Biden hold hands? I don't think so. Okay, but that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. There's probably a rule against it. Yeah. All right. So next week, yes, is Halloween. Yeah. Well, actually, our next episode, a week from when this airs, will be November first, and yes. we will no longer be in Halloween month. But as always, it's Friday, so we'll still have a new episode. Yep. We're not going to be leaving the spooky behind. We're going to take a little bit of a reprieve to look at some other concepts other than just spooky and creepy and gross stuff. 
We're going to throw in some more modern stories, some fun facts, some uplifting things to mm-hmm. balance it out just a little bit. But we will have one more special episode for Halloween yes. on Halloween Day. It'll be releasing Thursday morning. Yep. It's going to be kind of a mini episode. Um, we're doing it as a special because it's our favorite holiday, so don't fucking expect one for Christmas. Yeah, no. Oh, no. Oh, wait. I did. I do want to talk about some darker Christmas traditions, but maybe that'll be like... In a normal episode. Right, I could talk about Belschnickel. And Krampus and mm-hmm. how they used to tell horror stories on Christmas Eve. I want that to be my Christmas Eve. We bake cookies. Awesome. Yeah, that's true. My kids oh, we get, didn't last year. I was going to say, my kids get nightmares from, like, Percy Jackson. and oh. So, okay. we just have to wait till after bedtime. Fine. <laughs> Fine. Do we... So, oh yeah, so our question for next week was... What costume, cosplay, character would you be if you could be anything? Yeah. And you so can. we'll answer it next week. Yeah. And you can send us your answers on Instagram. Yeah. When we post the stuff for the episode, we're on Patreon. We're on Instagram. At an ode to the odd. Yep. We have an email. Yep. Podities at an ode to the odd dot com. Yeah. And comment there when they're... Yeah, I was just thinking that's probably the easiest for us. I mean, we're... Pretty active on the social media. Woo! Um, give us your answers. And there was something else we were going to say. So the next week's episode, Thursday, will be our last Halloween one for a little while. Yep. We're going to look at some history. And then Friday, do we want to give a sneak about what we're going to do next week? You've been doing lots of surprises. Do you want me to do a surprise again? Sure. Okay, well, maybe if enough people or if anybody asks on social media, I'll tell them, and then they can know ahead of time, see who's really listening. If enough people say so, maybe we'll just post random pictures, and you guys can try to guess what we're going to talk about. That would be fun. It'd be like a scavenger hunt. Yeah. Cool. All right, so, yes, we do episodes every Friday, so that's when you can expect us. We've had some questions lately as to when the next one's coming out, and unless something happens, you can Mm -hmm. expect every Friday. Every Friday. Every Friday. So, as always, that's Meg. And that's Kale. And this is Podities. Have a spooky Halloween, friends.